There is no such thing as a believer coasting to the finish line. We're not called to get to a point in our Christian life and Christian walk go, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm on cruise control from here on out. You continue to use your gift all the way up to the end. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. You have your Bibles taken a turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Continue in our series of studying 1 and 2 Peter, uh, writing to theological exiles. As we come to this part, we're going to look at how the church is to live in light of Jesus' return. So let me ask you this. Let's say that you knew for a fact that the world was coming to an end in 60 days. What are you going to do? I gave that some thought, and I was like, okay, 60 days. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to find a beach somewhere, and I'm going to sit out on the beach, and I'm going to have room service, and I'm going to have people bring my food, and I'm going to enjoy my time and just relax and do nothing and have people serve and wait on me. That sounded like a good way to spend uh, 60 days. And then I had this sobering thought. Everybody else has quit too. There's not going to be a pilot to fly me there. There's not going to be anyone driving a taxi to take me there. There's not going to be anybody in the hotel to check me in, anybody to prepare my food. And I realized in that moment, it was kind of a letdown. It was kind of a letdown. However, when we think about the end of the world and we think about what we would do if the world was going to end, we usually come up with some type of idea that we're going to go out with a bang. We want to do something big. We want to do something that nobody uh, or something we have not done in our lifetime before. That's, that's what we want to do. We don't want to just sit around and do our normal everyday life. When we get to this part of 1 Peter, and Peter is writing to believers, he is writing under in these these verses that the end of all things is near the end of all things is at hand and so peter is saying you live in the last times the the end is near and then he's going to give them instructions on how to live this is what he writes he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So Peter this morning says, as a believer living in light of the end of all things being at hand, that there are two ways that that impacts us. It impacts our lives and how we live now, and it impacts how we worship now as well. So the first thing I want you to see is the return of Jesus influences how we live now. That's what he says. The end of all things are near. Jesus is coming back. You're living in the last times. This is how you need to behave. This is what you need to do. And Peter writes this for believers 
who are going through persecution. So he's remember, he's encouraging them. All of this writing about suffering and everything is to be an encouragement to them. He is saying, look, you can endure this until the end. And remember, when the end comes, those who have opposed God will stand before God in judgment. Now, when we think about that, we automatically have a question. And the question is this. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and Jesus has still not returned. So are we living in the end or not? Was Peter right or wrong when he wrote this to the believers? Well, if you look at history and God's redemptive plan and his, his historical redemptive plan, what you find and what Peter is alluding to is we are in the last stage of that plan. It began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with his resurrection from then until whenever he comes back, it is living in the end times. And so we can't say that the New Testament readers would be surprised if we are still here today. It's that statement, the end of all things is near, is no more or less true now than it was when Peter first penned the verse. And as Peter is writing about that, he is also reminding us that he's taking us beyond just the one event where Jesus returns, that, that one point, but he's also talking beyond that, the time that follows when Jesus will reign in all his glory. And as believers, we are to live our lives now in the light of the truth that the end is near. And as you think about that, you would expect then Peter to give us a list of extraordinary actions that we should take, not instead of just sitting around and waiting, ho-hum, right? Just like if we knew the world was ending in 60 days, we're doing something really exciting. We're not going to do, do our normal stuff. We're not going to do just our normal daily routine of get up, wash clothes, feed the dog, make lunch, breakfast, dinner, you know, all that good stuff and, and go to bed. We want to do something exciting, I think it was the reformer Martin Luther when asked about if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would he do? And he said that he would get up, he would pray, he would read his Bible, he would work in the garden, and he would plant a tree. I'm, I'm with him on three of those. I never understood the fourth, the plant a tree bit. I, I don't know why he was planting a tree. However, the point is he was going to go about his normal daily routine. And these instructions that Peter gives us today as we read those and notice them, th these are mundane actions. These are normal actions believers have been instructed to participate in throughout the New Testament. And so the implication for them uh, then and us now is that we are to live every day in light of the end, and that behavior should be no more extraordinary if we knew Jesus was returning tomorrow or in a thousand years. The faithfulness of our profession should be evident every single day of our life. And that's what Peter points out. He, he first says that believers should model fervent prayer. This is where Peter starts. We need to be passionate in our prayer lives. And as he talks about our prayer lives, he attaches two words to it. He says, look, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Those two terms are in contrast to what we saw in verse 3 where he's talking about sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and, and all everything that showed a lack of self-control. He says, hey, believers are not to be given over to that. We should control ourselves, be sober-minded, be, be clear-minded. 
We want to be faithful. We don't want to look like the world. And Peter says, be clear-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Now, an, another aspect of this also is when you think about the end, we have a tendency to get hysterical. When we looked at the study of Thessalonians and we looked at them, the, the people in Thessalonica had gotten hysterical about the end and had impacted them so that they were not living correct lives and they were not living like faithful believers because they had given into the hysteria. Peter says, don't give in to the hysteria, because when you give into the hysteria, it's going to impact your prayer life. Right? Our prayer life should be one that is marked by clear, direct, thoughtful communication with God. Peter says, you can't have clear, direct, thoughtful communication with God if you're not living a self-controlled life. If you don't have a sober mind, then your prayers are going to be all over the place. He says, but be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Another aspect of, of that also is if you were to pray in the market during this time, if you were to pray in your house, if somebody you knew was hurting, you said, I'm going to pray for you, it would automatically mark you as a believer. And we have a tendency in our lives to not do something that gives us pain. If I eat something that makes me sick, I'm not going to continue to eat it. Peter says, continue on in your prayers. Continue to be faithful, even though that the activity that is associating you with the faith, your faith in Jesus Christ is what is causing you pain. Continue to be passionate in your prayer. When I preach and we go through text, I really believe that the text provides its own application. So this morning, what, what adjective would you put in front of your prayer life? And whatever adjective comes to your mind is the correct one. Don't talk yourself up an adjective. If the adjective mediocre came to mind, don't talk yourself up to, to great. Because if you know where you are, God can help you move and give you the strength to move to the next level so that you'll be fervent in your prayers. He also said that believers need to demonstrate sincere love. It says we're called to love earnestly. And that word earnest means an action that is purposely pursued. It's, it's relational. I purposely pursue to love one another, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter has mentioned this once before because it's central to who we are as a believer. We are to be known for our love to one another. And he says, as you love one another earnestly, your love will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12 helps us to understand this a little bit, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sin. And what we see in Proverbs 10 and what Peter is writing here is not that our sins are forgiven, for only Jesus can do that, but we see the contrast we see love contrasted with hatred. We see strife contrasted with, with covering the multitude of sins. And we need to understand if we love one another earnestly, we are not going to let the wrongs in the body that, that might upset us grow and develop into the fullness expression of hate. Because if that were to happen, then this will it, this extinguish our witness in town. It will extinguish your witnesses. If we as a church are, are 
yelling and fussing at each other and hating each other. Everybody in the community will know and our witness will be destroyed. And for Peter, it took on an even graver tone because there wasn't another church right down the road that a believer could turn to. The entire witness in the town would be destroyed if those who called on the name of Christ fussed and fought and hated each other and and didn't allow love to cover their sins and just looked like a big jumbled mess that the world didn't want to be a part of, then it's going to collapse and kill the witness there in the town. And we don't want that to collapse and kill Red Bank's witness in the community. So we have to love one another earnestly. We have to decide that we're going to do that and not let a disagreement or a discussion or a differing viewpoint lead to hatred. Our love covers a multitude of sins, and we need to extend that grace and that love to one another. Then thirdly, he said, believers should exhibit gracious hospitality. Loving one another leads us to show hospitality. We're kind to each other. Now, as Baptists, we think of hospitality as a fellowship meal. You know, we're going to go down to the fellowship hall, and we're going to put out a potluck, and we're going to enjoy that. And hey, that is hospitality. I love it. I love a good potluck as much as the next Baptist. But Peter's not quite talking about that. What he's talking about really manifests itself in two ways, and both are connected to the advancement of the gospel. The first is towns did not have inns and hotels and places for people to stay. And so from the very beginning, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people were going out and spreading the gospel. And as they would go to a town, they would need a place to stay. And if they would arrive in a town where there was another believer, then the hospitality should be extended by the believer in that town to the one who is traveling to proclaim the gospel. Should bring them in, give them a place to sleep, give them some food, so that they can continue in the ministry. The second aspect was there was not church buildings in towns. All right, I'm thankful for our church building here at Red Bank, thankful that we have it. Uh, It's a beautiful building. Glad we can meet here to worship. Believers at this time didn't have a church building. They met in homes. They went from home to home. And part of that hospitality is opening up your home for a time of worship and fellowship. And Peter tells them, hey, show hospitality and do it without grumbling. Why would they grumble? Well, they might grumble because it would cost them time. It would cost them money to have the believers over to, to feed them, provide bread and, and, and wine for them to drink and, and food to eat. But it would also, again, identify and mark them as a believer in the community. You've got a bunch of believers coming over to your house for worship. Everybody in town is going to know. Peter says, but it's all right. You need to do that. Do not allow the fear of the community knowing that you are a believer to keep you from showing hospitality. Show hospitality, open your house, invite other believers in for a time of worship and prayer. And do so without grumbling. Do it out of love, out of your desire to see the gospel continue to grow. And then he says, believers should display devout service. 
He says, as each one has received a gift in verse 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. He says, use your gift. Immediately you might ask, what gift? Well, the one you are given. He states this very broadly. Every believer has received from God a gift to use to edify the body of believers. I know we talk about the spiritual gifts, uh, preaching, teaching, evangelism, service, prayer. My spiritual gift is teaching. And my spiritual gift is to be used not just to call attention to me and say, hey, look, I'm using my spiritual gift, but my spiritual gifts should be used in a way that edifies you and builds you up in the faith. So whatever spiritual gift you have, use it. Use it for the body to strengthen those around you in the pew. That's why God gave it to you. I also think that we can extend this just a little bit because it just says, as each has received a gift. And, and Peter, again, doesn't give us a list. There's lists that are given in the New Testament. Paul gives a couple lists, and we can go through and, and look at those. But I think that Peter, by saying a gift, means any ability that you have. Being a handyman is not a spiritual gift in the New Testament. However, it is a gift. It is a gifting that you can use to help build up the body. You can use it to help those in the body of Christ. Use whatever gift you've given. Accounting is not a spiritual gift, but it is a necessary gift for the body. Use it to build up the body. And Peter says that when you do that, when you use your gift to build up the body, you are being a good steward of God's varied grace, varied all the variety of ways that God extends His grace, and He chooses it to extend it through you. You become a conduit. And it's like God's on one side and the body's on the other, and God sends His grace through you, and you act as a conduit to deliver God's grace to the body. Use the gift that He has given you. And you need to use that gift for as long as you are here on this earth. There is no such thing as a believer coasting to the finish line. <laughs> right? We, we're not called to get to a point in our Christian life and Christian walk go, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm on cruise control from here on out. You continue to use your gift all the way up to the end. Peter says, as you live, knowing that the end of all things is at hand, he says, look, let it impact your life. Let it impact your life now with fervent prayer, with sincere love, with gracious hospitality and devout service. He also says, let it influence how you worship. The return of Jesus influences how we worship now. Peter ends this section with a doxology, and doxology simply means a praise to God. He praises God. So as believers, we should worship by giving thanks to God. We should praise God for all the gifts He has given us. We, we should praise Him for the gift that He has given us to edify and build up the body. We should thank God for the community He has placed us in here at Red Bank. We thank God that He has saved us. We should thank God that He has given us the ability to spread and share the gospel. We should thank God for the life and the, the breath that He gives us. Our whole life should be one marked by thankfulness to God and everything that He has done and does for us. 
And as we give thanks to God, as, as we glorify Him, as we lift up His name in praise, what's going to happen is that it's going to move beyond the walls of Red Bank. People are going to hear about our worship. And they're going to hear about that because they see a group of believers who worship by glorifying God. Right? That's how Peter ends this. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Believers should glorify God. We give him glory. Psalm 29 tells us that we ascribe glory due his name. That's what we're called to do. We gather for worship to glorify his name. We gather for worship to lift up his name in song and prayer and the study of his word. And one of the ways that we glorify his name is we do what we have been instructed to do. When you live in those four areas that Peter outlined for us and you are faithful in those four areas, by demonstrating that you are actually glorifying God by being obedient to what he has called you to do. When you are fervent in prayer, when you persist in sincere love, when you extend gracious hospitality, when you use your service, in doing all that, God is glorified. And as you do that and you think about that and you're, we're living that out here at Red Bank, what we're going to find out is that it doesn't just stay in the church. Watch this. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Germantown, Royal Hall, Walnut Cove, Winston, the world looks at Red Bank, they should see an outpost of heaven. They should see a group of diverse believers praying for one another, loving one another, and showing hospitality to one another, serving one another, sharing our lives with one another to such a great extent that their reaction is one that leads them, those who are not believers, to glorify God. When they see me and they see you, ordinary people with all our flaws and warts being transformed by the grace of God and seeing what Jesus can do through people who actively live out their faith, they want the same thing. And when they come and they ask us and they say, we want what you have, we tell them it's not a what, but it's a who. We tell them that we have Jesus and they can have Jesus as well. You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transformed lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.